Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwarang country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week we'll hear from Nawi, a member of the Latrobe Student Union, about the upcoming week of action against Unicuts and Latrobe University's Undemocratic New Student Association. But first, some union news. Casually employed hairstylists are set to receive a pay rise for working weekends after Hairstylists Australia, the SDA and Hair and Beauty Australia reached an agreement they will present to the Fair Work Commission. Under the agreement, a total increase of around $5.75 per hour will be added to weekend casual rates. The pay rise will be implemented gradually during 2022 and 2023. This means a casual hairstylist working full eight-hour days over the weekend would take home an extra $92. The agreed position will now be presented to the full bench of the Fair Work Commission on the 28th of July. Hairstylists Australia Ambassador Rachel Yarwood, who works as a casual senior stylist in suburban Sydney, said the result fixed an inequity in the system. My colleagues, who were permanent, earned exactly the same as me on our Saturday shifts, and it never seemed fair. If they took time off, they were still paid, but if my son was sick or if I went on holiday, I got nothing. I thought casuals were supposed to be paid more to make up for that, Ms Yarwood said. Without casual loading, my Saturday pay is only $2 more. I don't know how many people would give up their weekends for an extra $2 an hour. We're just standing up for ourselves and saying, this isn't fair. Why are we the only trade that's being paid like this? I'm really glad the HSA has helped us finally make it right. Unions have urged federal and state governments to take immediate steps to support the development of an offshore wind industry following the release of groundbreaking research highlighting the scale of the untapped resource and its potential to create jobs for workers in fossil fuel industries. The Offshore Wind Energy in Australia report found the nation has high-quality, abundant offshore wind resources close to existing transmission infrastructure including promising locations near areas with large industrial loads, such as Port Kembla, Newcastle, Gladstone and south of Perth. Produced by the Blue Economy Cooperative Research Centre, which brought together expertise from the CSIRO, UTS Institute for Sustainable Futures, Industry and Trade Unions, the research not only offers detailed analysis of the industry's potential benefits, but outlines the necessary regulatory reforms. It found an offshore wind industry with local manufacturing of components could support up to 8,000 jobs a year, providing a transition for workers currently employed in the offshore oil and gas industries, along with onshore workers in fossil fuel industries. It also revealed that offshore wind could contribute to the grid by delivering a more diverse electricity supply that complements other renewable energy sources, providing reliable power when solar and onshore wind is unavailable along with delivering high-capacity factors and large-scale generation. Energy, maritime and manufacturing unions have urged federal and state governments to immediately act on the report's findings, including by establishing a national regulatory regime for the development of offshore renewable energy, 
incorporating offshore wind into energy planning, supporting the development of local supply chain capacity to maximise community benefits, and recognising offshore wind as a strategic resource for innovation and commercialisation funding. Maritime Union of Australia National Secretary Paddy Crumlin said, We know that a net zero emission renewable energy powered economy is necessary to limit the worst impacts of climate change. Australia has highly skilled seafarers and offshore oil and gas workers capable of constructing offshore wind projects. The development of an offshore wind industry would provide the opportunity for these workers to transition into the important work of delivering Australia's clean energy future. Offshore wind requires many of the skills that workers in fossil fuel industries have and can be built in places where workers have those skills, such as Newcastle, Port Kembla, Gippsland and Gladstone. The federal government needs to open its eyes to the enormous renewable energy resources off our coast and ensure that we have a regulatory framework that is robust and fit for purpose and that federal agencies are playing their role in planning this industry of the future. The ACTU this week congratulated the CFMMEU on their win in the High Court after six years fighting against the government's anti-union Australian Building and Construction Commission, or ABCC, over industrial action taken in Brighton in 2015 in support of bathroom facilities for a woman working on site. CFMMEU members stopped work in Bay Street, Brighton after the head contractor refused to provide amenities or a female toilet for the one woman working on the site. For the last six years, the ABCC has been pursuing the CFMMEU and two organisers, Steve Long and Jared Benstead. In 2021, the CFMMEU finally won against the ABCC after they took the case to the High Court. ACTU Secretary Sally McManus said, Women have the right to a bathroom at work, and the ABCC's fight against a union seeking this basic right is absurd and an appalling waste of money. The CFMMEU is doing a great job standing up for its female members and getting more women into the workforce in construction. The ABCC has proven once again that it's a Liberal Party attack dog designed and directed to attack unions. If they really worked in the interest of the public, they would be fighting against the underpayment of workers instead of against female restrooms. The ABCC has spent six years wasting tens of thousands of dollars of taxpayers' money for nothing. While businesses and workers are desperately calling for JobKeeper to be brought back, the Morrison government is bankrolling the ABCC, taking union organisers to the High Court and losing. Although the CFMMEU won the case, this case tied up union resources for years. The ABCC should be held accountable for this immense waste of money and for pulling union resources away from the essential work that the CFMMEU does every day. A new report by academics with the Australian Catholic University highlights the experience of warehouse workers who lost their jobs when Woolworths, Australia's largest private sector employer, closed the Hume Distribution Centre in the northern Melbourne suburb of Rob Meadows in 2019. In 2015, Woolworths announced its plan to close the Hume DC and relocate operations to a new automated site, the Melbourne South Regional Distribution Centre in Melbourne's southeast. The Hume DC was finally closed at the beginning of 2020. Cumulatively, almost 700 jobs were affected. The report found that unemployment was extremely high among retrenched workers, a problem which was sharpened by the COVID-19 crisis. It also found that there are insufficient local opportunities combined with low labour market mobility. 
Matt Toner, United Workers' Union Logistics Director, made the following statement in response to these findings. Warehouse workers across Woolworths and Coles face ongoing uncertainty in the face of impending automation and site closures. We know that our members have decades of experience, deep knowledge and transferable skills to offer their companies. They should be able to maintain their employment on the same terms and conditions, rather than be thrown to the scrap heap, where they will inevitably end up in more precarious and lower paid positions. The reality is that even automated warehouses need human workers. If Australia does not want to go the way of the Amazon model, our political leaders need a plan for a just transition in warehousing and other industries affected by technological change. We can have sophisticated warehouses and good union jobs. We don't need to choose between the two. You're listening to Stick Together. Oh, it's the best. This week, the Fair Work Commission concluded hearing evidence in the Horticultural Award variation case brought by the AWU. The case is an attempt by the AWU to end widespread worker exploitation and wage theft in the fruit and vegetable picking industry through the abuse of piece rate payments. The Fair Work Commission has now heard from an array of witnesses who have highlighted the need for a minimum wage safety net to end the current piece rate system, which is open to abuse and has often seen workers do back-breaking work only to be paid as low as a few dollars an hour. In closing this week, the Australian Fresh Produce Alliance, or AFPA, once again tried to pick holes in academic research the AWU has produced concerning piece worker earnings. The AWU's expert witness, Dr Elsa Underhill from Deakin University, had earlier given detailed evidence to the Commission of widespread systemic wage theft and worker exploitation in the industry. Dr Underhill's extensive academic research into peace worker earnings clearly shows that on average, peace workers earn well below the minimum award rates. The AFPA's expert witness, Greg Houston, claimed Dr Underhill's research was focused on working holidaymakers and couldn't be relied on for conclusions about earnings across all employees, a position that merely echoed the AFPA's previous claims. But evidence produced by the National Farmers Federation and several employers suggests they use the same piece rates for all types of employees, not just overseas workers. And once again, the questioning reinforced the AWU's case, as overseas workers make up at least 60% of the horticultural workforce, and due to their often poor language skills and added pressure to work on or jeopardise their temporary visas, they are often most at risk of peace rate abuse. Last week, evidence from farmers presented to the Commission continued to confirm it is common for workers to earn well below award rates, even at the better farms, which have presumably been used by the National Farmers Federation for their evidence. The farmers' evidence also showed they set the peace rates without consultation, not only in relation to their direct employees, but also for employees of labour hire companies who work on their farms. On some occasions, farmers even retrospectively changed the piece rates at the end of the shift based on what had been picked. Final written submissions on the case are due on July 26 and the final hearing for oral submissions is scheduled for July 30, 2021. On a positive note, traffic controllers have had a win in the civil construction industry after the Fair Work Commission ordered employers to pay proper overtime rates for overnight workers. D&D Traffic Management has been seeking a Fair Work Commission non-union deal to only pay its night workers shift loadings instead of higher overtime rates, even if they didn't take over from a preceding shift. 
Representing the workers, the AWU has objected to D&D's agreement approval application, saying it failed the better off overall test by allowing work after 6pm that did not fit the shift work definition in the Building and Construction General on-site award and would only attract a 30% loading instead of award-prescribed overtime penalty rates. It's a huge win, one that's five years in the making, AWU National Secretary Dan Walton said. The bosses didn't want to pay overtime rates to their workers by wrongly claiming the workers are shift workers. In what is a hugely casualised workforce, companies have been shortchanging their casual workers by treating them as if they were on a regular timetable. If you work irregular, unsociable hours overnight, employers should pay you night rates. They can't just pretend the workers are shift workers. D&D had argued that the nature of civil construction work covered by the Building and Construction General On-Site Award was project-based, as traffic control work moved with civil projects as roads were closed and construction took place on roads or bridges and other civil works. But in February, Commission Deputy President Bryce Cross held that D&D's non-union agreement failed the boot after finding that while the award operates on an assumption that there will be a rotation of shifts unless agreed otherwise by employees, the agreement did not. He said there cannot be a rotation of shifts across an entire enterprise that engages workers at various different work sites in different cities and regions. He invited D&D to provide an undertaking that overtime rates will apply to work that is not shift work, but the company refused, citing serious costs and other implications, and lodged an appeal. This week, the Commission rejected the appeal and reaffirmed Deputy President John Saunders' 2019 finding that shift work rates only apply under the award if employees continue the work of others on the same project, the same client and contract. The bench said the award's shift work definition required the continuation of operations by a group of employees on work which another group of employees had engaged in previously. This connoted at the least a two-shift system of operations. It said the night shift definition in the agreement, however, did not contain this requirement for the continuation of work at all and simply provides that any work shift starting on or after 6pm and finishing on or before 6am is a night shift. Thus, it would permit a standalone night shift worked within those temporal parameters to be paid at the 30% shift loading even if there is no preceding shift worked anywhere in the enterprise in question. As the proposed D&D deals base rates were only very marginally above the awards, the bench said this would necessarily be a major detriment under the agreement for night workers, which would cause it to fail the better-off overall test. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Earlier this month, Professor John Dewar announced there will be another round of job losses at La Trobe University. This time, it's forced redundancies. Staff have made huge sacrifices over the past 12 months with wage cuts, additional workload stress and working from home. Despite these sacrifices that staff have made, the university will make 250 to 300 workers redundant. At this time, 
the university has doubled its expenditure on external consultants, including $6.5 million on a single consultancy. These forced redundancies are a part of another restructure as the university declares a $168 million shortfall due to the loss of fee-paying international students in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Last year, the university sector was excluded from the JobKeeper scheme, despite public universities' not-for-profit status. And given the $12.4 billion that was wasted on companies which experienced no downturn in revenue during 2020, the NTEU is calling for the return of that money and the reallocation to job-rich sectors, which experienced mass job losses like higher education. For a small portion of the JobKeeper money that was wasted on corporate handouts to profitable companies, we could have saved the 21,000 jobs lost from higher education, said Dr Alison Barnes, NTEU National President. We know of a thousand planned job cuts that are yet to be finalised. With a tiny fraction of this money, these could be immediately saved. La Trobe University is a clear example, as it aims to save $28 million in a restructure which follows last year's mass redundancies of 300 staff. Deputy Vice-Chancellor Richard Speed told ABC Radio redeployment would be the first option offered to people losing jobs. Our current modelling suggests that we might be able to find savings in other areas other than jobs, he said. Hopefully, we can ensure that as many of those staff as possible can be redeployed into some of these new jobs as part of the restructure. There is little doubt that these new jobs will be less secure and lower paid, despite workers already agreeing to pay cuts in an attempt to save jobs last year. But what about the students? Along with workers' unions, student unionism has also been slowly eroded in recent years, to the point where La Trobe students at regional campuses no longer have union representation. I spoke with Naui from the La Trobe Student Union about how they are standing with university staff against this latest round of cuts to tertiary education. Hi, my name is Naui. I'm part of the Latrobe Student Union. I'm a general member there, um, and I'm also helping coordinate the education campaign to stop the cuts with Latrobe students against uni cuts at the moment. Yeah, so can you tell me a bit more about that? Is it mainly due to COVID? Yeah, I guess Latrobe has been leading a little bit around the country when it comes to the cuts to education. So our Vice-Chancellor, John Dewar, is actually um, the chair of Universities Australia, who last year, when the university sector was hard hit by the COVID crisis, they argued to do voluntary redundancies to try and make up for the shortfall in their profits due to the lack of international students being able to come into Australia which has kind of like unleashed a whole series of uh, restructures uh, to our universities. And the National Week of Action, how is this going to happen with lockdowns? Yeah, so Latrobe Vice-Chancellor John Dewar had a meeting with the staff um, on July 14th to announce the new cuts that are happening. So there's going to be 230 job losses at Latrobe. And they're also going to create 300 new roles that I guess some of the staff that are being made redundant can reapply, which, uh, you know, will be on more casualized contracts. So 
this has concentrated in some of the professional staff at Latrobe, but we're also seeing, for example, like the honors students of like the philosophy departments are losing their advisors and things like that. So pretty awful situation. So with the National Union of Students, we're coordinating a national week of action starting from August 11, and that'll go on for a week. So that'll be happening across Australia. But I guess, yeah, due to COVID, we are facing a bit of a bump in the road, but we are planning to do lots of online actions as well. You know, there's at the moment, at least specifically at Latrobe, there's a consultation period that lasts three weeks from the 14th. So we're also trying to bombard John Dewar and some of the consultation live streams that he's going to be doing, you know, ask some of these questions like, well, you say that you know, our education is not really going to suffer from these restructures, but we're already seeing that. And as students, we know that staff conditions and, you know, teaching conditions are our own learning conditions. So what does he have to say about things like that? Do you know much about what's happened with the Latrobe Student Union? It doesn't exist in Bendigo anymore, for example, and now they've got this association instead Yeah, that's kind of the juicy story because, I mean, John Dewar not only has been leading in attacking teaching and staff, but also the student union. So, yeah, last year, the Latrobe Student Union was defunded by 90%. That remaining 90% was given to this new student association that was created across the Latrobe University campuses which is not a student union. It's not only controlled by students. The vice chancellor, for example, can sit on the board of directors. Every expenditure that, you know, the councils in either Bandura or Bendigo, all of the spending needs to be pre-approved by the board. So it really has removed really all independence from student organizing. So I think that we need to, yeah, understand this attack of creating essentially a SCAB student union in this Mm. broader context of attacks to higher education and again particularly the fact that John Dewar has been leading these cuts I think really presents an opportunity I think for us organizing at Latrobe to say that this is not an example that should be followed by other universities and that students are actually pretty pissed off about yeah the state of education and our own bodies to uh, fight back and resist these cuts and I think it does raise more questions about just like student unionism uh, in Australia the fact that at the moment you know voluntary student unionism is what we are seeing which means that the services and amenities fees that students pay uh, that goes directly to the university and then it's up to the university to negotiate with the student unions to see how much of that funding they can receive which I mean immediately restricts I guess a student union in be able to position itself as oppositional to the vice chancellor if you know, all of their funding comes from the universities. You know, the fact that that happened in, what was it, 2005 or 2006 really defanged, I think, a lot of the student unions around the country. So, yeah, I think, like, we're presented with a bit of an opportunity, I think, at the moment to rebuild student unionism um, and actually start drawing the lines and saying, well, if you are going to look at the broader context of education in Australia, we have consistently seen liberal governments attacking the sector, trying to more and more, you know, direct it as an American style model where 
you can pay, you know, thousands of dollars for your degree. Also, the lowering of like the hex repayment thresholds last year, you know, the doubling of the arts degrees. It's really, yeah, kind of like a pretty poor terrain for students at the moment. So we definitely need to rebuild the grassroots activism um, and engage more students. How has everything gone with the union doing your elections and everything during COVID and not having people there to vote and Mm-hmm. How how's that gone? So last year, kind of like the reason why the student association was created is because there's been two factions of the labor students running the Latrobe Student Union for many, many years. And there was a, a Somirek faction that were called the Mods. So quite famously, you know, were revealed in that 60 minutes expose as branch stackers. Mm. All of the people in this 60 minutes expose of branch stacking had been previous presidents of the Latrobe Student Union, um, all of them. So, um, yeah, it was just like, oh, yeah, we know all of these people have been presidents of the Latrobe Student Union. Um, and the president from last year, Annabelle Romano, was also in that Labour Party faction. Um, so she was kind of like behind restructuring the, the student union and merging it with kind of like the regional student unions and creating this vice chancellor led kind of um, student association and COVID kind of made it easier because well there's students aren't really around um, so there was a lot of undemocratic character to it and then different section of the labor students wanted to save the Latrobe Student Union and you know a lot of us that weren't part of labor helped to oppose this new association being constructed But like the vote turnout, for example, to the Latrobe Student Union elections last year was it was like 900 students, which does not really um, represent the cohort. Yeah, Mm. yeah. I think it more represents the fact that student unions haven't really been doing a lot for the past few years. You know, Um, Mm. it's been about, oh, let's run like a free breakfast program or, you know, events, which is kind of like obviously nice, you know, students are poor, these are things that are necessary, but it really has completely taken the edge off of saying, well, actually students care about broader things and just kind of like events and and free breakfasts. And if you Mm. want to make yourself relevant, you need to actually have things to say about events that are happening in their lives. And it's not only going to be directly related to their education. It could be things about the environment. It could be, you know, things like standing up against racism. We saw, you know, Black Lives Matter up last year. You know, we've seen Palestine being bombed this year. So all of those issues, actually, students care about them. And if their student union was doing things like that, well, they'd be like, cool, wow, they can do more than just, you know, give me a muffin on like Wednesday mornings. That's awesome. Maybe there is other things that we can do. And importantly, like it means that people feel compelled to want to organize because there's a bit of a lead given. So that's a key ingredient that I think is missing to like organize students at the moment. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Naui for making time to speak with us. To sign the petition against the Trobe University job cuts, search for Professor John Dewar at megaphone.org.au. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 039419 8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, 
Whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.